1832 election had been won by Andrew Jackson, which left Henry Clay in rather of the same position that he had been in four years prior, looking at the aftermath of failure and trying to figure out a path through the rubble. It was a difficult defeat for a man so accustomed to victory, but Clay did not have much time to sulk, as the nation called him back into service to lend his efforts in order to keep the Union from fracturing apart in 1833. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. We left off last time with the nullification crisis, which is where I'd like to pick back up as we move forward with the life of Henry Clay. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about the ins and outs of the crisis, as that's a bit outside of our focus. But once Clay returned to Washington for the next Senate session, he was instrumental in working with colleagues in the Senate and the House in order to seek a peaceful compromise to the situation. He had to work with folks from the North and the South, protectionist and free trade advocates, Democrats and National Republicans. In an indirect way, he was working with his recent opponent, Andrew Jackson. Jackson was providing the stick by threatening to use military force to make South Carolina comply with federal law, while Clay dangled the carrot before Southern agitators, including Senator John C. Calhoun, of revising the tariff in a way that would satisfy people on both sides of the tariff debate. On February 11th, he delivered a speech in the Senate, announcing the compromise tariff bill that he had been able to negotiate. As a sign of just how momentous Clay's efforts at the time were, his longtime opponent and the man whose jacket he had shot through in their duel in 1826, or episode 41 for us, John Randolph of Roanoke, remarked during a speech in Virginia that, quote, there is one man and one man only who can save the Union, and that man is Henry Clay. I know he has the power, and I believe he will be found to have the patriotism and firmness equal to the occasion. This was a huge shift for a man who had just lost the popular vote by over 200,000 votes to Andrew Jackson just a few months prior, and it speaks to something key to understanding Henry Clay, at least in my humble opinion. When Clay was on his game, and let Clay be Clay, he was an expert politician with a keen sense of the entire playing field of American politics and all of the players on it. He could make change happen by using his savvy, his wits, and his skills of persuasion. However, at a number of points in his career, he was consumed with the presidential fever, and it dulled those skills and his abilities at the time when he most needed them to be sharpened and working on his behalf. His ambition and his competitiveness, in my estimation at least, were the two Achilles heels that prevented him from obtaining the presidency, or at the very least, much greater acclaim in American history. Had he devoted less time and energy to seeking the presidency and more to the true growing crisis of the time, perhaps he might even have been able to help the nation bring about an end to slavery without the calamity of the Civil War. As it stands, we can only speculate about what might have been. Getting back to the narrative. As can be imagined, with Clay receiving such acclaim around the nation for his role, quote, in saving the Union, people start to talk about a third Clay run for the White House in 1836. At the time, Clay wrote that, quote, I really feel no disposition to enter again on an arduous and doubtful struggle for any office. John Quincy Adams, on the other hand, confided to his diary that he felt Clay's, quote, vaulting ambition overleaped itself by the precipitation. Clay would not be alone in seeking his party's presidential nomination in 1836, however. He had walked into the 1832 party nomination process with the party's support in the bag, 
But now, he was the twice-defeated presidential candidate. For all of his national acclaim, there are doubts in party circles as to whether he could ever win. First, though, we must note that there was a significant change in the party. After the 1832 election, national Republicans felt that they needed to shake things up a bit. But as political parties were not nearly as organized as they are in the present day, 2017 for our non-contemporary listeners, the rebranding of the party didn't happen overnight. In the midst of the bank war in 1834, Henry Clay delivered a speech in Congress on April 14th where he referred to, quote, the patriotic Whigs of New York City who had sent in memorials calling for the recharter of the Bank of the United States. From that speech, the term would spread, appearing in an issue of the National Intelligencer newspaper that day and in a letter from Senator Daniel Webster the next day. By the summer, it was the common term used to refer to the party opposed to Andrew Jackson. That's not to say that the primary reason for everyone gathering under the Whig banner was their opposition to Jackson. Some were more issue-driven and, quote, strongly supported the American system in all its particulars and its fundamental assumptions about the importance of the role of the national government in advancing the country's happiness and welfare. They believed in policies that would improve, consolidate, and harmonize the nation, policies that would integrate private enterprise with public interest. However, those that gathered under the Whig banner after it was raised by the leaders of the defunct National Republican Party were a diverse group and became increasingly so as time went on, though its leaders, including Clay, would attempt to establish a core ideology and platform as Democrats who were disenchanted with Jackson, such as John C. Calhoun, John Bell, and John Tyler, started crossing the line and joining with the Whigs. The policies proposed by the party began to be watered down the 1836 election would go on to muddy the waters even more. In addition to Clay, a host of other Whigs were talked about as presidential candidates. Longtime listeners to this program will know that William Henry Harrison was one of the people being put forward, and his candidacy would prove detrimental to Clay's chances, as they were both drawing from what had previously been solely Clay's western base of support. Other Westerners throwing their hats in the ring were Supreme Court Justice John McLean of Ohio and Senator Hugh Lawson White of Tennessee. Harrison and McLean were more ideologically aligned to the core of the Whig Party, while White was one of the disenchanted Democrats who crossed over to oppose Jackson. The final candidate in contention was just as big of a force in the party as Clay himself, Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. At some point, I'm envisioning doing a biography series on Daniel Webster, as we've done for Clay, but the important thing to know at the moment is that Webster, being the only candidate from New England, was expected to be able to count on the votes from that region of the country without much opposition, giving him a slight advantage. But he would have to work to garner support from other regions if he was to be anything more than a regional favorite son candidate. As 1835 went on, Clay was able to read the writing on the wall and told those who inquired time and again that he would not be seeking the nomination in this election cycle. Instead, he proposed that the party divide up its efforts and run two sectional candidates, one focused on building support in the Northeast and one in the South. This may sound a bit counterproductive, as the electoral votes in one region alone were not enough to claim the presidency, even if they could win in all of the states, which wasn't likely. But... As Clay was well aware, an election could end up in the House, where who knows what would happen. Worst case scenario, the presidency was lost. But running a strong campaign could get a Whig majority in the House to oppose Martin Van Buren, Jackson's vice president, who was his hand-picked successor. Besides, though I don't have a primary document I can point to as proof, so take this with a grain of salt, 
But with Clay not being at the top of the ticket, would he really want a Whig candidate to win in 1836? In addition to electioneering for Whigs, Clay would continue to champion Whig causes in the Senate and often could be found taking the lead in opposing Jackson and his administration's proposals. As the election neared, Clay was becoming increasingly confident at Whig chances at the polls. He wrote to Samuel Southard on September 27th that, quote, I think the political signs are highly auspicious. I have now very great confidence in the defeat of Mr. Van Buren. Who did Clay think would ultimately come out on top? Well, he threw in his support for General Harrison. In late October, he attended a large barbecue close to his home, Ashland, where he announced that he would be voting for Harrison as he felt Harrison to be best positioned to defeat Van Buren. In private, though, Clay would admit that Webster was his preferred candidate. Either way, it would not be the Whigs' year for victory. Van Buren won the popular vote with just over 764,000 votes. Combined, the Whig candidates garnered just over 736,000 votes and won 10 states. As we've discussed previously, Harrison was the best performer out of all the Whig candidates by winning six states, including two on the southern side of the Mason-Dixon line. Webster only won in one state, his home state of Massachusetts, with even neighboring Vermont opting for Harrison. Hugh Lawson White only won Georgia and Tennessee, and South Carolina, whose electoral votes were awarded by the state legislature rather than by the popular vote, decided to skip over all of the candidates officially in the running and instead award their votes to Wiley P. Mangum of North Carolina. Though Whigs were disappointed in the result, they also had cause to be cautiously optimistic about the future. Van Buren hadn't even been able to win Andrew Jackson's home state, and his support was understood to be weak and dependent on staying in the good graces of Jackson. Meanwhile, Whigs had picked up more seats in the House. On top of that, they had run a military man who had outperformed all of the other Whig candidates in the running. As Thurlow Weed wrote after the 1836 election, quote, Depend upon it, Van Buren's election is to be the beginning of the end. Indeed, Clay would have a front-row seat for the calamity that was the Van Buren presidency. Two weeks after the inauguration, the Panic of 1837 began, and the Whigs had no qualms about laying the blame at the door of the White House and the man who was seen as being Jackson's unofficial third term. As Van Buren's term went on, it became increasingly apparent that he would face a tough time getting reelected, and that the Whig candidate, whoever he may be, would have a fair shot. Given those circumstances, guess who was interested in throwing his hat in the ring? Before he could get the nomination, though, Clay would have to weigh in on a growing national debate. As we discussed briefly in episode 28, abolitionism was a growing movement in the United States, and the opponents of Henry Clay branded him as being everything from a leader in the pro-slavery movement to an ardent abolitionist. To set the record straight, he delivered a speech in the Senate on February 7, 1839, in which he denounced the extremes on both sides of the issue, those he labeled as ultras, and said that the efforts of both abolitionist and pro-slavery extremists would lead the nation to ruin and, quote, deluge our country in blood. Clay's prescribed solution to the issue was, quote, time. Providence will cure all. Abolition, nothing. It may ruin all. It can save none. Before delivering the speech, he had consulted with several of his friends, including Senator William C. Preston of South Carolina. Preston, after reading the speech, warned Clay that taking a middle-of-the-road track 
might anger both of the ultra-factions and threaten his chances of becoming president in 1840. Clay, in turn, replied that, quote, I trust the sentiments and opinions are correct. I had rather be right than be president. Be careful what you wish for, Senator. In the years between 1836 and 1840, Clay worked behind the scenes to garner support as well as to convince potential rivals for the Whig nomination not to run. He saw his main competition being with either Harrison or Webster. As he was closer to Webster, he set his focus on him. In early June 1838, Clay arranged for a meeting with Webster, where he laid out his reasoning for why Webster should not run for the nomination, in a way, as described by Clay, that was, quote, not in the form of advice, but of suggestion. Nothing doing. Webster wasn't convinced that he should give up just yet, and pro-Webster papers began launching attacks against Clay. Meanwhile, the Anti-Masonic National Convention was held in Philadelphia on November 13, 1838, and Harrison received the party's nomination for president, while Webster was nominated as their choice for vice president. Clay started to wonder whether Webster was behind the growing support for Harrison and intended to use the old general as a proxy to gain power for himself. Before any of them could get to the Whig National Convention, however, another contender appeared on the field. During the Van Buren administration, various border skirmishes occurred along the U.S.-Canada border, and in each instance, General Winfield Scott was sent to the scene and was able to work out a peaceful resolution. As he gained greater national prominence, some Whigs started to look at him as a potential candidate. This was not at all going as Clay would have wished. He was hoping to eliminate rivals, not get new ones tacked on. As he continued to work to build support, despite growing fears of his chances, Clay finally got a break. Webster left from the U.S., bound for England in the spring of 1839, and left a letter to be released upon his arrival in London, announcing his intentions to not seek the Whig nomination for president. Finally, things were looking a bit brighter, and Clay felt that he might stand a good shot against the two generals. In order to give his candidacy a boost and to work on the ground to secure support from delegates to the upcoming Whig National Convention, Clay made his way to New York in July and August. He went all over the state, starting in the West, then making his way east with a brief crossover into Canada, followed by a quick stop in Vermont. Then he ventured south through Albany on to New York City. During his trip, he was able to meet with Whig political leaders such as Representative Francis Granger, Governor William Seward, former Speaker of the House John W. Taylor, and Thurlow Weed. Some were more willing to meet with him than others. His meeting with Seward was only possible through happenstance, as Seward had made a point of not being present at his home in Auburn, New York, when Clay called. But by accident, they ran into each other at Port Kent on Lake Champlain. Clay would find that a number of Whigs in New York with Seward as one of that number, were concerned about Clay's electability, and Winfield Scott was proving to be an attractive alternate candidate. In town after town, though, he was toasted as, quote, our distinguished guest, Henry Clay, the great pacificator, and was increasingly looked at as the candidate to beat as the time neared for the Whigs to gather in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Unlike nowadays, candidates did not attend the nominating conventions. Instead, they had to rely on their proxies on the ground to manage the behind-the-scenes wheeling and dealing to secure the nomination for their favorite candidate. Harrison, as it turned out, had a good one in his corner, Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania. 
Stevens, originally an anti-Mason, was thoroughly opposed to Clay and immediately began directing the pro-Harrison, anti-Clay efforts out of his hotel room. Though Clay initially had a plurality of votes at the convention, as it wasn't the majority of at least 128 votes needed to win the nomination, Stevens and others in the Harrison camp were able to bring delegates over to their side one by one, while at the same time working to establish the rules of the convention to work in Harrison's favor. In particular, with the implementation of the unit rule, which meant that the vote of a majority of a state's delegation would be counted as the full electoral vote of the state, Clay's plurality dropped to 103, followed closely by Harrison's 91. At that point, Stevens accidentally dropped a letter from Scott on the floor of the headquarters of the Virginia delegation in which Scott had expressed his, quote, favorable disposition towards abolitionists. Knowing that this would result in the South falling in line behind Harrison, Thurlow Weed of New York used his influence to shift New York's support to Old Tippecanoe, and Harrison soon received the party's nomination with 148 votes to Clay's 90 and Scott's 16. The party that Clay had helped name and establish had gone with another candidate. Clay reportedly learned of the news on an evening in which he had been drinking heavily with friends in a room at Brown's Hotel in Washington, D.C. Even before learning of Harrison's victory, he was reported as making, quote, most singular exhibitions of himself and being, quote, open and exceedingly profane in his denunciations of the intriguers against his nomination. When he heard the news after returning to his boarding house, according to a purported eyewitness, quote, he jumped up and started screaming and cursing and pacing back and forth across the room. Such an exhibition we never witnessed before. Such a storm of desperation and curses. Clay kept stamping his feet as he paced. Finally, he exclaimed, My friends are not worth the powder and shot it would take to kill them. The golden opportunity that he saw for the Whig candidate of 1840 was now denied to him. Though it would be small comfort, Harrison had at least pledged to serve only one term if elected. So 1844 was still a possibility either way. Regular listeners of this podcast know how the 1840 election turned out and its aftermath. So I think it's safe to skip ahead a little bit. The untimely death of William Henry Harrison would prove just as disruptive to the Whig Party as Martin Van Buren's loss in 1840 was for the Democratic Party. As described by historian Charles Sellers, quote, The Democratic Party emerged from the defeat of 1840 leaderless and mutinous. Its egalitarian insignia appropriated by the foe. The democracy's war aims had become sadly ambiguous. It could easily have resulted in the Democrats becoming the minority party for the foreseeable future if the Whigs had been able to consolidate their gains. However, then along came John Tyler. Clay, whose original plan to dominate Harrison and be the man behind the curtain secretly running the government agenda, had been quickly thwarted by the incoming president shortly after the inauguration, now felt that, with a new president taking office, he had a fresh opportunity to put this plan into place. As historian Michael Holt explains, quote, Harrison's death seemed to restore Clay's stature as the undisputed leader of his party, for Whigs could not believe that Tyler, given his relative youth and accidental incumbency, would have the temerity to oppose him. Tyler's pleasant personality further aroused expectations of harmony between the two. By mid-April, Clay himself was informing friends that he expected to pass the entire agenda the Whigs had laid out for the special session. 
Wigs in the cabinet and Congress soon discovered that they had mistaken Tyler's courtesy for diffidence, his affability for malleability. Clay ended up fighting another president and losing another battle over rechartering the Bank of the United States. Though the Whigs would symbolically expel Tyler from the party, his apostasy would threaten the unity of the party as Daniel Webster, Clay's main opposition for control of the Whig Party and Secretary of State as appointed by Harrison, would decide to remain in Tyler's cabinet rather than follow the rest of the men appointed by Harrison, as they resigned in protest at Tyler's continued vetoes of the bank bills. Webster's decision to remain with Tyler would keep Webster's friends, especially those awarded with patronage in the State Department and other parts of the government, in support of the administration. Meanwhile, Tyler was able to draw on the other former Democrats who, like him, joined the Whig Party to oppose Andrew Jackson, rather than out of an ideological support of Clay's American system or any other Whig ideology. As his presidency went on, Tyler would also seek to take advantage of the discord in the other major party and would court anti Van Buren Democrats in an attempt to craft a third party that he could either utilize to run on as a third party candidate or use as leverage to convince the Democratic Party to nominate him. Either way, he did seek to run for a full term as president on his own right. Meanwhile, the stress of 1841 had taken its toll on Henry Clay. When he returned to the Senate in December, Quote, some of his colleagues even commented that this seemingly vigorous man of 64 years, on the eve of another run for the presidency, suddenly looked old. Time was not working in Clay's favor in terms of his ambitions to claim the presidency. Thus, he had to take stock. With such an intransigent president in the White House, there was little chance he could accomplish much from the Senate, and he would only exhaust himself further in the process when he needed to save up his strength for 1844. Thus, on February 16, 1842, he submitted his letter of resignation to the Kentucky General Assembly and requested that March 31st be his actual resignation date. It is not coincidental that this date was only five days prior to the North Carolina Whig State Convention, which was due to name Clay as its choice for president. When the 31st arrived, he delivered a farewell speech in the Senate and was greeted by many of his colleagues. However, Clay noticed his sometimes friend, sometimes rival, John C. Calhoun, quote, standing at a distance. He walked over to him, and the two men embraced in silence. Even these titans of American antebellum politics could take a moment to drop their plotting and conniving in order to show respect to their fellow contenders when they were leaving the field, no matter how briefly the departure was meant to be. Indeed, Clay returned to Ashland with nearly every Whig, and really nearly every Democrat as well, knowing that he was in the running and was the likely Whig candidate in 1844. However, there were fears as to, quote, whether this obviously tired and worn-down warrior could lead the troops to victory. We'll leave it there for now and pick up next time in an episode I'd like to call GTH, How Texas Kept Clay from the White House. I feel a little explanation is in order with this one. Supposedly, people who decided to pack up and head west to Texas would carve in their doors the initials GTT, which meant gone to Texas. Considering what happened in 1844, I figured that the Clay campaign of that year would have instead carved GTH, gone to, and you can figure out what the H stands for, I'm sure. I promise we'll get back to Harrison at some point. While, as a student of old Tippecanoe, it has proven quite beneficial to understand Harry of the West better, this is, in fact, the Harrison podcast and not the Henry Clay podcast. 
I'm thinking two more episodes should do it. Honestly, we could go on for a while longer with Clay, and I'd be interested in hearing an extended series or even a podcast devoted to Clay. I'm just not the person to do it. However, our resident Clay fanatic might take up that baton someday. Who knows? Speaking of, as always, special thanks go to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. Whether I'm talking about the hero from North Bend or the male boy of the Slashes, I couldn't do what I do without him. If you, like me, could use his assistance with your podcast or next audio project, drop him a line at Andrew at Foncook. That's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, please send any questions, comments, suggestions, or random memes involving Old Tippecanoe to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. Source information for this episode can be found on the website at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also catch up on past episodes on the website, or you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, or any of the other subscription options available to ensure that you don't miss a single episode. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time.